the thing is you do have to have the internal resources for all of these administrative requirements that you need to fulfill. So you have to do the analysis and see how much money are you giving to your insurance company and in profit versus how much money can you really potentially save? And you have to go back and look at the claims that your employees have. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure, and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. Mandy Sussman is the Executive Director for Compensation and Benefits at Wildlife Conservation Society. That's the organization that runs the Bronx Zoo, among other well-known institutions. When it comes to offering employee benefits, companies have the option of being fully insured or self-insured. Anyone curious about what the difference is and what the transition from fully insured to self-insured looks like, you're about to get all the answers you're looking for. Mandy Sussman just recently went through this transition. So with that said, let's dive right in. Mandy Sussman, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm uh, looking forward to getting under the hood in terms of your knowledge base, getting to understand a little bit more about who you are and what makes you tick, and just having a good conversation. What do you say we do this? Sounds great. All right, good stuff. So I like to give the audience a better understanding of kind of who you are as more of just a person. So I got a couple rapid fire questions that I'd like to throw your way. Ready? Sure. Yeah. All right. Tell me something that most people just don't know about you. So there's a couple of things, but one thing that kind of informs who I am is I read a novel every night and not the full novel, but I read something that's just completely fictional and pretend and just that's my escape time. I spend probably about half an hour, 45 minutes reading every night. And I I really get into kind of historical novels that are based somewhat on fact, but have some crazy spin that's total fiction. It just gives me a chance to learn a little bit, but still have that escapism. So that's something that I lean on every day. At the end of the night, I have my downtime where it kind of gives me a sense of just getting rid of all the stuff that happened that day and moving into some fantasy world. And then that helps me kind of slip off to sleep. So That's great. I actually used to work with a gentleman that swore he did the exact same thing. He wanted to tie nothing to what he does for work. He wanted to completely yeah. escape. And he kind of looked at that as 
almost like a wave coming in and crashing and washing away anything that had transpired the day before. So it yeah. sounds like you do the same. What's a piece of technology that you couldn't live without? So actually kind of building on that thing that I do every night is reading. I read on my iPad. It's one of those things that I resisted getting an iPad for a long time because I thought, well, that's, it's just a toy. I don't need that. But I use it every day. And I love it because I can get my hands on any book at any time from anywhere. <laughs> it's translated. It's not. It's amazing the library that I have in my hands. And I use the New York City Public Library app the most. It's free. You just need to sign up for it. So they have your information. And then they ask you for donations, which I, of course, support the library. And it's an amazing resource. They've done an amazing job building this tool and uh, couldn't live without it now. So I got a question, and it totally yeah. has nothing to do with you and has nothing to do with this podcast. Yeah. This is just my own selfish curiosity. When yeah. nonprofits ask for something like that, like a, like a donation, yeah. is there like a, a de minimis minimum amount? Or like, are they just appreciative to have anything? Or is there kind of like a rule of thumb? on what you should donate. I never know the answer. So it really is any amount, honestly, for a nonprofit helps because if you have 500,000 people who give a dollar, that's $500,000. And it's a lot easier to get somebody to give a dollar or $5 or $10 than it is for somebody to give $5,000. Yeah. I have another podcast called Conversations with Connors and it was suggested mm -hmm. to me to, there's this service called Patreon and it's essentially mm -hmm. same concept, I guess. You just kind of ask people mm -hmm. to donate and yeah. it's really interesting. To your point, I've got a yeah. lot of people that donate 99 cents a month, but it actually yeah. adds up. It, it so, adds up. So I'm sorry to sidetrack here. Let's but back to no, you. Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> Tell me a habit that you have, something good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah, so I actually was listening to one of your earlier podcasts with Alexa from the ISS, yeah. and she and I have the same habit, which is I am an avid runner. I am the president of my track club. I don't run every day because my body just can't handle it anymore, but I run five to six days a week, and habit is not maybe the right word. Maybe it's more obsession. <laughs> um, How many miles do you run? Right now... We're kind of in a holding pattern with races, so I'm trying to just maintain a base. So I run between 20 and 25 miles a week. Oof. Oh, man. I don't think I've run that aggregate in my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Good for you. Any knee issues, back issues? So I actually had knee surgery in November, but the cause of the tear in my knee that required surgery was actually not from running. I was doing jump lunges and I landed funky and tore my uh, meniscus. Oh man, that hurts just thinking about that. All yeah, right. it was not fun. <laughs> Let's talk now about, tell everybody, you had recently last year taken on a new role with a new organization. Do you mind just sharing yes. what you do and tell a little bit about the organization? Yeah, sure. Sure. So my title is Executive Director for Compensation and Benefits. I am in charge of all compensation and benefits for the Wildlife Conservation Society, which is the organization that runs the Bronx Zoo, but we also run the Queens, Prospect Park, and Central Park Zoos, and the New York Aquarium, which is in Coney Island. That's our New York operation, but the organization is called Wildlife Conservation Society, and our mission is conservation. 
We operate in roughly somewhere between 50 and 60 countries. And we have roughly 2,000 employees in those countries working on conservation efforts programs, support of the local on-site conservation work that's being done in Africa, Asia, and South America. So we have a global operation. We have benefits packages for the global employees that are really right now because I've only just started, are basically the minimum requirements, the legal requirements for those countries. And we have a compensation system that, interestingly, and actually this is the reason why I'm at Wildlife Conservation Society, I actually created the compensation system for WCS that they have still have today while I was a consultant at PricewaterhouseCoopers huh. in the late 90s and early 2000s. This was my first big project that I was leading at PricewaterhouseCoopers, and I had a soft spot in my heart for WCS because I had been taking my boys who were small at that time to the zoo for many years and was really excited to work for them as a consultant. And I fell in love with the organization and actually kept in touch with one of the HR generalists there who's still there today and was able to let her know that if they decided to actually hire a compensation professional, I would be the one that they should hire. And um, it took 20 years, but <laughs> but I'm here in my dream job. And it's been really super exciting and really nonstop. I started on September 30th of 2019. And a lot, a lot has happened, but it's been all good. That is such a great story on so many levels where you started your career and yeah. here you are in that dream spot, maintaining those mm -hmm. relationships, building that, yeah. developing that skill set. But now your job has moved from sounds like equal to the comp you're doing benefits. Is that a 50-50 split or how does that work? It's really not because in the nonprofit world, for the most part, compensation really just means salary. You don't have bonuses, mostly. Sometimes there are discretionary bonuses or there's if you have a sales organization in uh, like the, the stores, sometimes the nonprofits that have a retail operation, sometimes they have a, a sales plan. But for the most part, it's just you get a 3% increase every year. Mm -hmm. So compensation is, I would say it's probably 20 or 25% of my job now. So, and the other 75 is benefits. So how do you do that? How do you, I mean, that's a tough transition to go from a, it a is. you know, yeah, you've had a background of all compensation and a really impressive one to move into a role where it's predominantly not. <laughs> right, right. So there's a couple of key factors that have enabled me to be successful so far with the transition. One is as a compensation professional, I think we all, as, as our careers develop, we all have a need to, to understand on a real fundamental basis what benefits are about um, because they are a key factor in what we refer to as total rewards. And that's really what the employee can look to gain when they come work for you. It's not just about the salary. It's about you know, am I going to be able to retire? Am I going to be able to go to the doctor and not spend my entire paycheck on 
covering the doctor's fees? Um, am I going to get some financial planning assistance? Am I going to have a gym program that I can use? Those types of things. So that all of that, it's not just about the salary or the bonus or, or any equity that you might get. It's about all of the other benefits that are provided. And so, you know, as my career was progressing as a compensation professional, I always worked with the benefits folks. As a consultant and in-house, there was always a partnership with benefits. So I really made sure that I asked questions, that I learned more about what really is required for deciding what type of benefit programs to offer. When you're talking about health insurance, is it one option only? Should we give different options? How do you assess what those options are? So once you have that relationship with the benefits folks and spend some time learning about those different questions you should ask and the implications of those questions, the implications of the answers really, you get to know a little bit more. And then once I came on board at WCS, I had amazing outside consultants. We worked with Gallagher Benefit Services, and they've been a godsend. We have a phenomenal team that's supporting us through the transition that we just came through, and they've been there every day. Every day, something is going back and forth between Gallagher and WCS. They're just phenomenal partners. I, I wouldn't have made it through without them. What is it about that partnership? That's awesome to hear that. And I think the next season of this show, I'm going to dedicate to vendors and I guess partners such as, awesome. as Gallagher because I'm, I'm yeah. hearing more and more people like yourself yeah. to talk about, again, there's, it's such a complicated world and there's only so much that you can be expected to know and not right. to mention the amount of dollars that we're talking here, you really do right. need to know a specialist. So what is right. it though about Gallagher? Is it the relationship you have with them because you trust yeah. them? Is it the, the subject yeah. matter expertise? What is it that- It's all, yeah, yeah, it's all of that really. I mean, the the team of folks that they have assembled for us are um, really seasoned and super approachable and really, really eager to go above and beyond. Um, you know, and we're new clients, so you always get a little extra special treatment. Mm -hmm. But I feel like even though right now we're new, I feel like the level of service that we will get for the rest of our contract with them will continue to be at that level. Just always available. I can text or call whenever they have all the expertise for all of the different types of benefits that we have. Like and what, like what, it, what, give me an example of like, right. So we have welfare benefits. So health insurance we have through Aetna, we have dental insurance, we have life insurance, of course. And then we have multiple different types of retirement plans. We have union plans, non-union plans. There's probably like 20 or 30 different benefit plans that, we offer to different groups of our employees wow. and they have no matter what type of benefit plan it is, my contacts there that are, that I'm working with on a day to day basis specialize in health and welfare benefits. But if I have questions about the retirement plan or anything outside of the health and welfare, they have somebody that they can call on staff 
that will be available the next day. How did you find him? How did you choose him? How did you know who to go with? These are so, big, these are luckily, big decisions. They, they are big decisions, and actually, they were already on board before I was hired. Okay. So I wasn't involved in that process. So I really can't speak to that, unfortunately. But whoever picked them, it was the best decision that they could have made. Sorry, I don't have any insight on that. Again, I'm just so interested in all that. And I think yeah. I'm going to do a season and uh, I'm going to ask you for an introduction to whomever you're working oh, with. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so when we were talking before, you know, mm. off uh, camera, you had made mention about the organization going from fully insured to mm. self-insured. And mm-hmm. that's something I just don't know much about. And yeah. selfishly, I'd love to hear, like, why would an organization do that? And how is that transition? Like, what, what do you do to yeah. take the organization through that? Yeah, we've just come through that. And again, the decision had already been made when I was hired. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get a lot of the insight in the early stages of this. But I do, as I've been bringing the organization through this transition, I've learned a lot about what the benefits are to the organization and understand really why it was really a great move for us. So let me just back up a little bit and explain for the people who may not fully understand what being self-insured is because it's a relatively new concept. So a fully insured company, a company who has fully insured health benefits, and you can do it with other types of benefits, but I'm going to just speak to health benefits here. So when you're fully insured health benefits, the employee pays a portion usually, and then the employer pays a portion of the monthly premium typical split would be 80-20. So the employer pays 80% and the employee pays 20% and it adds up to, let's say, $500 a month. That $500 a month goes to the carrier. Our fully insured carrier was Blue Cross Blue Shield. So it would go to Blue Cross Blue Shield. They would use that money to cover any expenses that came in, any doctor's visits or surgeries or pharmacy, whatever it was. They would use that money to cover those expenses. And then if there was anything left over, that was their profit. So you pay $500 a month for coverage. Let's say you go to one doctor's visit. So that's $100. They pay the doctor $100 and then they pocket $400. Now, some months you may actually incur you know, $2,000 worth of medical expenses. So then the company, the Blue Cross has to kind of pull from their reserves and pay for that. But what ends up happening is that the insurance companies usually end up with a sizable profit that we're paying for, right? The company, you know, WCS would be paying them that profit. So in a self-insured model, what happens is there's still a $500 a month premium. The employee still pays 20%. We still send 80% to now Aetna is our current carrier. Aetna banks all of that money for us and they use that money to pay the insurers, whoever's providing the services. So they pay for your pharmacy coverage, the doctors, anything that's covered by Aetna gets paid. But whatever is not used stays in our account and will be used towards future expenses, medical expenses. But If we don't use all that money at the end of the year, we can then say, well, we're going to actually adjust our premiums down because we're not using all that. We don't need that much. We already have our reserve banked. 
we have our coverage that we know we're going to be safe so we can reduce it. And the role that Aetna is playing really is just claims administration. We are paying them a fee to pay the doctors and do all of that to manage the process, right? We pay them for that. And does this, when you go self-insured, is this for all different types? Is this dental, pharmacy, medical? Is this everything? It can be. For us, we're just doing medical, which covers medical, vision, and pharmacy. You can do it for dental. Um, I haven't seen that as much. You have to do a cost-benefit analysis, right? Mm. It depends on how much money you're sending to the insurance company. For us, for the medical insurance, the potential savings was quite significant because we would be able to bank the premiums rather than give that money directly to the insurance company. And does your comp like numerical analysis background help you to try to model out what this could potentially cost so you can budget accordingly? Yeah, actually that budgeting and the cost-benefit analysis is done actually by the finance team because they have all the claims and all of that information. Yeah, I mean, certainly the analysis is not really that different when you're looking at benefit costs versus salary costs. It's not really all that different, but in our case, the analysis is done actually on the, with the finance team, not with the HR team. Gotcha. And partly because I wasn't there when the initial analysis was being done. Gotcha. So what becomes the most challenging facet then of your role? Right. So this transition has been really, well, one, it was a big deal from a communication standpoint with employees because we had been with Blue Cross Blue Shield for, actually nobody really knew how long, but it had been at least 30 years. And this is an organization that's been around 125 years and change is difficult. (laughs) Change is a difficult thing for this organization. So changing health insurance companies was potentially a, a landmine, but Aetna worked with us really closely to make sure that the plans were identical, as identical as possible. So there was no big education to be done on what types of plans were being offered because they were pretty much identical and the costs were the same. So that made it much easier. So once we got through the communication process and open enrollment, we then had to do a bunch of things that we'd never had to do before. We needed a plan document, an ERISA plan document for all of our health and welfare plans. So that was a new concept for the organization. And of course, me being new to benefits, I had no idea what went into that. And then the HIPAA rules, when you're fully insured, HIPAA is managed by your insurance company. When you're self-insured, that becomes the company's responsibility. So I am now the HIPAA privacy officer. We also have a gentleman in our IT department who's our HIPAA security officer because there's Mm. a data security requirement. We have a HIPAA policy. We've had to do HIPAA training for our HR, payroll, and IT staff. So so can I interrupt for one second then? Yeah. So this to me, so those sound like added expenses, added responsibility. Is it Mm. that Mm. are going to cost more? Like, again, there's training involved. So is going self-insured, does it really save you that much more money? Yeah. So Gallagher is helping us with the plan documents and the HIPAA compliance and all of those things. So we're paying them, you know, a retainer 
to help us through this process this year. But even with those added fees to Gallagher and the time and expense, you know, if you even carve off 80% of my time or 70% of my time and not just salary and benefits, but time lost doing other things, it's still a substantial savings for really? us, potentially. So, so why doesn't everybody go self-insured? I suspect that a lot more companies will do it in the future. It is kind of a slow-moving boat. Incidentally, when I was working at the Met in 2008, 2009, so that was you know more than 10 years ago, there was discussion at that time they were also considering going self-insured, which is the first time I heard about it. And it fascinated me back then. So I asked a lot of questions. So that kind of helped me in my transition now. But the thing is, you do have to have the internal resources for all of these administrative requirements that you need to fulfill. So you have to do the analysis and see how much money are you giving to your insurance company and in profit versus how much money can you really potentially save? And you have to go back and look at the claims that your employees have. Mm -hmm. If you have a healthy population, you really should consider going so, self-insured. So, but if, if you're not, how do you have access to that information if you are fully insured, if you're not, like you're not HIPAA uh -huh. compliant? Is it kind of like a cat? And am I just not understanding it? Or? <laughs> right, right. Well, you get the claims information that you see is, the financial they, stuff. they do it. Right. They send you data in a non-personally identifiable way. So you know what claims came in and how much money you spent on what types of insurance costs, mm. but you don't know who submitted the claim, gotcha. right? You don't know who had the open heart surgery. <laughs> gotcha. So for the, the people that are listening to this now that are in benefits yeah. or, or whatever, they're just yeah. in, you know, in a position, maybe they're even a CFO and they're just looking from the numbers standpoint. Yeah. When, what size of an organization do you recommend kind of make this transition? And if so, what are the things that they need to be thinking about? It sounds mm -hmm. like, I mm -hmm. guess, some of that cost-benefit analysis. You need to have a good vendor, broker, whatever it is that you want to call them. Right. It sounds like you need to have a good support team around you to be able to kind of raise the bar from a security standpoint and from a HIPAA standpoint. What, what are the other right. things? Yeah, so we start really basic with how much money are you spending on premiums every year? to send to your health insurance broker. And, you know, health insurance is really the first place that you would start because the dental and others tend to be a lot less pricey. So the cost savings is probably not enough to warrant going self-insured. But yeah, I mean, you just do a cost-benefit analysis and say, if we were self-insured and the claims that we currently have continue on the path that they're on now, if your total insurance premiums are $3 million a year. And the claims that come in, and if you look back five to 10 years, and you see that the claims that your employees have been submitting only are equaling to one to $2 million a year, then that means that you're potentially saving a million or $2 million every year well, that you're numbers. not giving to the health insurance company. Oh, wow. Real okay. numbers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's potential. And, and those aren't the numbers from WCS. I wasn't there when they did this analysis, so I don't know exactly what the numbers are. But once you start looking at it in aggregate and you start to see those disparities between the premiums that you're sending versus the claims that are coming in, that's when you should start thinking about going 
self-insured. Ah, so interesting. And you can start by talking to your current insurance company. They'll tell like the Blue Cross. Or, exactly. Or but they're losing you, aren't they? They're like, they're losing you as a client when they... Well, you would still pay them their administrative fee, right? You would, yep. you're still, we're still paying Aetna. We're just not giving them extra money of profits on our employees' health costs. Hmm. Would it be better for, from your perspective, to have been there from the beginning? Or since there might have been a little bit of a severed relationship, you get to kind of come in and the fresh start and kind of yeah. uh, you know, take the reins. It's interesting. I think it worked for me. It worked perfectly <laughs> because I don't know how much help I would have been in the early stages doing the research and all of that. I think they did an excellent job picking. Aetna has been phenomenal. Really great, great partners in addition to Gallagher. And I'm not sure that I would have found a different vendor to work with that would have been as good and um, the fact that it was kind of all done and set in motion, and I basically just walked in and, you know, my first job was communications, which is, for me, that's the easy part. <laughs> so the plan documents and the HIPAA and all of that stuff was a huge learning curve for me, which, again, Gallagher has been right by my side, sharing lots of information with me about what needed to be done and what documents I needed to find and all that good stuff. So I really couldn't have done it without them. Wow, that's a really that's yeah. a really strong endorsement. And it sounds like yeah. you were just you just got this great job within an organization that you're really mm. passionate about. You've got a long-standing yeah. relationship with them. I think that's a really important piece that we could have had a whole other podcast on, just the importance. Sure. Relationships. Yeah. Would you mind just yeah. touching on that? All right, one more question, I guess, before. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Know. Tell me about I guess that relationship. You started that God, tw- yeah. how many years did you say? Did you say yeah, 20 years it was ago? Like, probably about 20 years ago, yeah. So just walk me through that, if you don't mind. Right. So we got an opportunity to pitch a compensation review project at the Wildlife Conservation Society. And because this was a nonprofit, I have a lot of experience with the nonprofits and with the culturals, I kind of took the lead on developing the proposal. And so I did some of the initial interviews with HR folks, and really developed that relationship from the get-go. The head of HR at the time, her name's Miriam Benitez, she's now the head of HR for Grameen America. And I'm still in touch with her too. Her second-in-command for this project, that the compensation project, is Zoma Rivera. And Zoma is still HR director there, and she heads up the business partner team at WCS. And I always stayed in touch with her. We're on LinkedIn together. We're on Facebook together. And I let her know, like every year, two years, three years, I would check in with her and say, hey, how's everything going up there? Let me know if anything comes up. When there were career transitions in my life coming up, I would always check in with her. It was just never the right time. And sticking with it and being kind of a little bit proactive, but, you know, and not because... I was being pushy to get a job, but because I generally have a love for the organization and really connected with Zoma. And I think that's, it's not just about being pushy. It's about really developing friendships. And the HR world is full of a lot of really nice people. (laughs) It's definitely made a huge difference in the types of work that I've been able to do. I've been able to 
do some really cool projects, work for some really great clients and companies, and all because of the relationships that I've been able to develop. You can't buy those and you can't put a, put a price tag on them. You're speaking my language, Mandy. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, it's man. all about the network, right? Oh, ain't that the truth? <laughs> Mandy, this has been great, extremely informative. I really thank awesome. you for, for sharing your story, your level of expertise. And uh, I had so many other questions, but we're just so over time. So there's, uh, I, I might have to ask you back. I would be happy to come back. Okay. All right. Yeah. Everyone's hearing that. <laughs> thank you so much you make it a great Absolutely. day many thanks for listening to who's who in hr if you're looking to connect with more top level hr professionals be sure to log on to networkwise.com to find out how you could be part of an hr mastermind group also subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with networkwise in the interim make it a great day and remember to always network wise.